Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies. The BTB Internet Talk Show is back this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on the Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling Twitch channel. Hey, don't be afraid of Twitch. It's a great interactive way to watch cool shows like mine. That's right. You can write comments during the show, and we will respond. This week, we have the very funny Holly Ballantyne, the also very funny Joel Brill, and the funny host of the Funny Science Fiction Podcast, Tim by Siegel. Head over to the Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling Twitch channel through the link in the show notes and click that follow button so you can watch all the great programming they have seven days a week. It's free, it's fun, and it's weird. Hey, BTV buddies, I want to talk to you about Thousand Fell. Thousand Fell is shoes, but not shoes like you buy, wear out, and throw away so they can spend a few thousand years in a landfill. Thousand Fell is full circle footwear. What is full circle footwear, you ask? It's footwear designed from innovative leatherless materials, which is backed by Thousand Fell's brand-owned recycling program, which guarantees their sneakers will never end up in a landfill. How's that for you? These sneakers do good, feel good, and look good at the same time. Vogue said these sneakers bring both a cool factor and practicality. Thousand Fell sneakers are 100% leatherless, 100% recyclable, 100% vegan, zero waste, stain and water resistant, odor repellent, and blister proof. What more can you want from shoes? Head over to thousandfell.com and check out the Color Drop collection and make sure you claim your 10% first customer discount on these great sneakers. When you check out, tell the cool people at Thousand Fell that Behind the Bits sent you. They're good ones. All right. I think we're live on Twitch. Uh, so today, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Uh, met this guy through podcasting. <laughs> Anthony Janot is a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian who sold out shows in Australia, England, Scotland, Sweden, and more. In 2020, Anthony released his debut stand-up comedy album. Uh, guess what? It's called Stand-Up Comedy Album. Easy to find on Spotify, I'll tell you that. And he's recently started a podcast I want to talk about called the Highbrow Drivel Podcast. Anthony, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm excited to chat to you. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I am talking to more people from the United Kingdom and Australia than I am United States people lately. So <laughs> it's really it's really neat because you guys you guys are you're different. And I want to get into that a little bit um, because what you do the, the the way you are able to add to your comedy the storytelling part. Um, United States audiences are not as forgiving of that kind of stuff. They they want set up punch, set up punch, set up, and 
I, I I really enjoyed your album because I was able to relax and get into the story. So that's one of the things I want to talk about. But first, I think you've been doing comedy for about 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah. I will say there was a couple years that I took out. So I think when I started comedy, I did the, the read the same books as everybody usually yeah. reads and, and, you know, got the same advice of everyone that you want to laugh every 15 20 seconds if you've really got a great joke sort of thing. Yeah. And I started comedy trying to to write jokes like that. Mm. And, and again, the classic wisdom, hone your five, work your five. And I did the same five of like really short, sharp jokes for about two years. And, you know, it wasn't terrible. I won a competition that, you know, um, had some really big names. Ronnie Chang was in that. Like we, we, yeah. we sort of started out together our first three Three, um, my first three gigs were competitions that he was also in. He won one, another guy won one, I won one. Um, and then what happened was I couldn't replicate that. I didn't find that funny. And so I just stopped having fun off, on stage. And so then I took a couple of years off and then came back and did did what has evolved into what I do now. Right. And it, it's funny, a lot, almost everybody starts out with, the, you know, the rapid fire, the one-liners or the two-liners and maybe three tags. And it's, I think everybody has to do it. It's almost like your, your comedy basic training or something like that. And you're developing your stage presence and stuff like that all at the same time. But... I, like you, am the same way. I have to tell stories. I'm talking about my real life, and I have to give a little bit of background, and I'm not going to get a laugh every 15 seconds. But when I get to it, I want it to be good. And, like, from your album, it was good. So I you know, I really enjoyed the fact that uh, I could listen to somebody that puts a little bit of exposition into their act. And it's uh, – it's, it, we don't get it as much over here. Thanks. I enjoy that. I do think, because I have thought about this a lot, because even coming from Australia to the UK, I had to punch up even the, the version that you get now is, I think, the reason I put the album out was because the UK made me a better comic because it, that like this goes really well over here, that style of comedy. Yeah. But I had to punch it up because I think in Australia, one of the things is that because the scene is so small and your opportunities for stage time are so little. But then we have the, this massive comedy festival to get stage time. What you need to do is do an hour before you have 15 minutes worth of jokes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so often most of us, what we'll do is go, but we can't tell shit jokes for 45 minutes. Right. So let's, Let's develop the story around it, be interesting till we get to the joke and, and use the jokes as a way to keep people listening for, to, yeah. to not feel like they were ripped off because you told 15 minutes of jokes in an hour, right? right? And so you have to develop storytelling as a tangential skill um, to, to, to build those shows before you're actually ready because really you shouldn't be charging people money to listen to you for an hour when you've got 15 yeah. minutes worth of jokes unless you develop something else around it. So I think that's what happens is we, we get used to doing these hour-long shows and then in the background we've got to learn then, okay, how do I take what I'm doing here and punch it all up to, to get it so that 
I can perform in a club where, you know, I, like at Fringe, one of the gigs I did, because I had an Edinburgh Fringe, I had an 11.30 p.m. slot in like one of the boozy hubs. Yeah. And one of, and, and, and in a 20 seater room. And one of the nights, every single person there was a bus party, right? And you, <laughs> you've listened to the story show. It's not, it's the exact opposite yeah. of my ideal crowd. But you have to like, yeah, coming from Australia, you kind of have to reverse engineer that as opposed to, I think, most of the world where you have to learn how to come in hot and manage a crowd and build these really punchy jokes and then earn the right to talk for a longer time, which is probably the correct way to do it in a lot of respects. We just do it a bit backwards, I guess. This <laughs> is what happens when you're on the opposite side of the world. Yeah, and uh, the funny thing is, is storytelling is starting to become more popular over here. However, they're not associating the storytelling with the comedy so much. It's usually pretty serious stuff. And the funny thing is, is right before the pandemic, the last thing I did was a storytelling uh, night at a, a winery. And it was really fun because I, I put a lot of good... Um, tags in there and people laughed all the way through and I you know I told a story that I had never talked about before and it gave me material to put into an actual act so I, I, I really enjoy storytelling and you know I just think our attention spans really need to get a little bit longer and be able to just be patient um, and we know the punch is going to come. We, we know it's going to be funny. Just let it go, you know, but that's, that, that's not us Americans. We, uh, <laughs> yeah. We're not like that. Although, to be fair, to be fair, it is, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of places in the world. Like I, I have definitely done gigs that went well, by the way, like, no, it wasn't that the gigs went poorly and I've had people come up on stage and say things like, Oh, you were really good, but that's not comedy. And yeah. I was like, did they laugh? Yeah. Yes, that's comedy. Yeah. I had a, a, a guy at, at Fringe who came to one of my shows and then at the bar afterwards, a comic who, who I get along quite well with, um, and he said something along the lines of, and it's like a classic backhanded compliment. He's like, you are going to want to, if you ever go to the US, you're going to want to be really, really good because you don't, you can't perform in clubs. You have to perform in theaters. And it's like, well, (laughs) and it is interesting that there is this mental dichotomy in, in that one of these things belong in theater and one of these things belong in clubs. Mm. It's also interesting that comics would claim that clubs are the high ground. Like if I have to pick one of them, I'm doing the theater. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And I think the difference in audience is also, you know, I've I've performed enough to know that people over here absolutely do not do any research on the comedian that they're going to go see. They, it's, I mean, they're, a lot of them are my age. Um, They are on their one night out every six months and they're going to a comedy club and you know, their sensibilities are not ready for what they're about to hear most of the time. I mean, you know, they're not, they're not ready for dick jokes, eating ass, all the, all, all the stuff that our young comedians are doing right now. And then they get pissed off and they don't go to another show. But if they just do a little research and say, Hey, you know, this one's not for me, but next week it looks like, uh, 
Scott Curtis, the old guy, is going to be up there doing his clean stuff, and and you know, but we don't do that. And I think over there, you, I, I think your audiences know what they're going to go see most of the time, even if it is a club. Is is that right? I would say, kind of. I would say what clubs are quite good at doing is building a lineup around the the headliner a bit. Yeah. Um, and so. It, yeah, I, I think I, I would not say it's always great though, and particularly I'm I'm being very London centric here, right? Like mm. the minute you get out of London, there are a bunch of gigs that kind of happen maybe once a month, and the organizer's been running it forever, and probably hasn't seen ninety percent of the acts that he's booking, and is mm. purely going on feedback right. from the person who booked, which is super subjective. Um, and so there are, like, again, I've, I've done gigs where I've walked in and it is quite literally like an 80-seat community centre and every single person knows each other by name and it's like, oh, actually, if you were booking the right, like the best comedian for this gig, mm. it's, it's not me. Like, I can right. I can make it work, but there, there are there are people who are... Because if, if everybody knows each other by name, what you want is someone who's going to be interactive yep. and by the end of the show... He knows them all by name, right? And yeah. I didn't get into stand-up comedy to talk to a neighbour. Like, yeah. that's not what I'm here to do, you know? <laughs> I don't want to know your name. I've got something to say, you Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I like that. And one of the things I noticed, because I watched some of your video too, is you seem very comfortable on stage. Did you ever have stage fright, or are you just one of those people that don't really have it? No, I did, and particularly when I was doing the short jokes, which felt unnatural to me and I didn't quite trust as much. It, mm. It's definitely been a lot of learning because I, what I've increasingly realized is a lot of what I funnel into comedy is just general kind of anxiousness around the edges. Mm. And that's where I find the funny. And so when I'm, when I took the decision to try and do stuff that I enjoyed talking about, then all of a sudden yeah, that nervousness is there, but it's the same level of nervousness I have talking to anyone at any time. So mm. it's, it's just like a constant. Right. And then on top of that, just the more you do the jokes and particularly as somebody who is, can be divisive for audiences, the more you say, you, you go, okay, yeah, I know that maybe tonight I've really had to work hard and, and, and where the laughs came from, we're not my jokes, they're, they're stagecraft and what I've learned how to eke out and grind out a drawer instead of getting a, a unanimous decision win, right? Yeah. I'm really hustling for the bell here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you do that enough times and you go, okay, that's one. And then you do nine other gigs that go well and you go, okay, so it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's just not for everybody and you've got to learn to develop skills separate to what you enjoy doing. Right. Um, but when you, but what you enjoy doing does work. You just need to be performing it to the people who want to see that. Yeah, yeah. When did you, when did you get the idea of uh, being a comic? Was this something that you grew up wanting to do, or was it something that came later on? So the actual decision to try it was in my twenties, but the the love of stand-up comedy is, I feel like this is a super cliche kind of way to get into comedy, but I had a sick day and like going through my parents' VCR collection and I found 
Eddie Murphy delirious yeah. and it blew my goddamn mind that he could, he was a rock star and he was saying all the kind of things that I was saying to my friends, which we couldn't say now and shouldn't say now, but at yeah. the time, that's <laughs> yeah. how we, yeah. at the time, that's how we interacted with each other. I thought it was hilarious. And I, I wanted to be Eddie Murphy so bad. Right. And then I fell in love with comedy. And so I, I, I went to local gigs and like I said, we've got a big festival. And so from the time I was about 14, I was just like, uh, getting my dad to take me into the city so I could see the shows that mm. didn't have age limits and stuff. But it wasn't until I was about 21 and I saw, so it's, it's interesting because most people get into comedy because they see somebody like Eddie Murphy who inspires them so much that they go, I need to do that. Yeah. I was the opposite. It wasn't until I saw someone who was so bad yeah. that I was like, <laughs> no matter what I do on stage, I am not the worst thing to happen to comedy. <laughs> and so that's what kind of empowered me to go, oh, I'll give it a crack. Then. Yeah. It's, it's really funny that you say that because when I was doing my first open mics, I my wife's very frank with me and, you know, tells tells me when I eat shit and when I do well, and I would take her quite a bit, and I felt I was totally fine with it because I'd run my bits by her. But the only question I ever asked at the end of it of the open mic was, "Was I the worst?" And yeah, you know, I... she she'd be totally honest, and I was never the worst because you know, there's going to be somebody that just <laughs> is awful, and it's their first time and their last time. You're never going to see him again. But you know, you know, I started moving up to middle of the pack, and then got a little bit better, and then I didn't need her anymore. So she, you know, I could just go do my thing on my own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It is like. It it is a natural defense mechanism, I reckon, to just be like, I don't, I want, I don't want to be the weakest link in the pack. Like it's, a, it's yep. genuinely a pack mentality. Yep. I don't want to be the one that they cull at the end of Survivor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, thinking about your, you talk about in the album, you talk about the your real jobs and how you're in advertising, marketing, social media, and, and stuff like that, um, which is absolutely mind numbing because I know I have to do my own social media for my stuff. And I just got so sick of looking at it. Um, have you gotten any material that is just directly, I, I heard a couple on the album, but does a lot of your material just come from the stuff that you have to write up for these clients? Oh, absolutely. Cause, cause there is, there's two things about it. One is that it is mind numbing and boredom is great for creativity right yeah, the more yeah. bored you are the more you have to entertain yourself and then the second is that the job is absurd right like i've had to pretend to be a tool company for way too much money yeah. um and and all of it is ridiculous and and the more you can see the absurd in it the more you're like hey right now i am a fully grown adult talking to a 16-year-old college dropout because he bought a tool that he could barely afford to do things with real skills that I don't have. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and he's got to talk to me who's getting way too much money for this conversation. Yeah. Um, the more you go, your, your brain starts to play with these things. 
And then the third thing, the, the real gift from a creative standpoint of working in social media is it means that I get to be on social media at all times. So I'm abreast with the news and I'm not a topical comedian at all. Yeah. But what I am good at is going, how does this thing in my life interact with this conversation that people seem to want to have? Right. And so it's not going to catch me by surprise, you know, that, that right. people are worried about housing affordability or, or whatever the, the co- co- topic of conversation is. Yeah. If I can fold it into the material, I will, because I, I'm constantly on social media, which is a great thing for, for comedians. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately it is. And uh, the, the, the bit you did with the the two pictures of Rihanna, Rihanna and uh, that's advertising, you know. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. I mean, it is it is absolutely ridiculous as well because I started in the industry at a time where, like, most of my uh, managers, creative directors, these people were writing TV ads, right? They were huge budgets, 30-second TV ads with bunches of billboards and all this stuff around them. And that was still part of my job. It was still a small part of my job. Mm. But most of the brands wanted to funnel it into to tweets. And so you have these 50-year-old people who think in terms of these grand TV ads yeah. trying to come down to 140 characters and then they get their idea into 140 characters and the brands go, no, 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 you've got to cut out 20 because we need 20 emojis at the end. <laughs> Oh man, that's nuts. Uh, it's funny. I, w- one of my best social media mediums is Instagram and it was starting to wane. It wasn't, it wasn't doing as well. And I started, uh, posting these memes where I'm kind of just shitting on my own podcast. And, uh, I've got one with a guy eating ice cream by himself. And uh, it says celebrating my one year anniversary with all my fans, you know, and, and (laughs) I just keep churning those out. And it's funny. I, it's totally blowing things, blowing things up, at least for now. I know that's going to go away too, but you know, it's kind of fun to mess around with the algorithm a little bit and get some new people interacting with you. But uh, that's about where the fun ends. It's really (laughs) making the memes. That's not fun. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, the fun thing, if you can get it to work is that if you can be quite meta with the form like you are doing with the meme and then being quite self-deprecating, yeah, the the algorithm often likes that. Still to this day, my most popular post about my podcast was when I announced that I was starting it and it was just like uh, the middle-class white comedian starter pack, uh, podcast starter pack. And then it was like a photo of my man bun. So it was like, man, bun. <laughs> uh, it had, you know, what's his face? Uh, the rapper who uh, I'm going to, pop. Uh, oh, it'll come to me. The guy, the thrift guy anyway, okay. but it was just like middle-class topics yeah. and, and in jokes. And then it was like Steve Carell, like in jokes, when can I be in on this? Like, yeah. And that is, like, you know, that is a lot of comedy podcasts. Yeah. And it is, it is the sort of thing where people go, ah, we, we see what you're doing. You are like that. Good on you. We'll, we'll throw you a like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's weird how that works, but I guess that's the game. That's what we have to play. Um, thinking about the album, Obviously, you um, 
you said at the top of it that you recorded uh, two sets and put all that together. What was your end game? What did you want to accomplish by putting the album out? So, you know what? 50% of it was just that. I had performed four solo shows in Australia and then I moved to the UK for a year and I got double as good as a comic just because they beat the nonsense out of me. Like, you you know, even as you said today, I'm still quite a rambly storytelling comic. I was worse when I was in Australia and Uh partly because nobody cared that I wasn't. And I didn't realize I needed to punch up until I got to the UK. And then I felt, I felt like it was unfair that all these people who'd come and seen me for years would then like miss it, not missing out. That's super self-indulgent, but just, Oh, I I've been lying to you. Cause I thought that was the best I could do. Yeah. But actually <laughs> here's this bit better that it, it's like, you know, when you break up with your girlfriend and then you lose weight, uh, yeah. I was a bit like that, that, yeah. that I'd gone away and got better and so, oh this is what um, you wanted <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly oh here you go that thing i said i couldn't do guess yeah. what i can um, and so i was in australia for um actually for my sister's wedding i wasn't going to do shows mm. but then i thought i really wanted to put the show on and i'd just done it at edinburgh like i just finished my my run and i i just thought oh well you know i know i can sell this show well and i don't know like i I don't know if the material gets better and i don't know if i want to keep doing it as a, a show anymore and so why not just fill out a room a couple of times record it and and put it out and at the time because i put it out I recorded it at the end of October 2019 um, and it was released in May 2020. At the time, I had thought that releasing the album would inspire me to not tell those jokes anymore on stage. (laughs) As it turns out, (laughs) I have not told those jokes anymore on stage. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get on stage these days. But uh, exactly. and I, you know, I just don't know if you can throw out Doomsday Prepper. That that is so hilarious, and uh, I actually had to listen to it through twice. And the the part where you're like, oh, she's got land, and <laughs> that that little subtle thing right there just got me so much. Yeah. So I think. I think that is my favorite line in that bit too, purely because it is it is a classic bait and switch where it is a yeah. ridiculous emotional situation and you go to the absurd for a moment. And particularly because it's a little bit out of character for me as a comic, it really does blindside people. And I do, yeah. as a comic, it's always good when you can catch people by surprise, particularly because that joke comes 45 minutes into the show, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because because I haven't been on stage really since I released the album, I've had a lot of time to think about like, what do I do? Because I don't feel comfortable starting to do new gear after having not done comedy for two years. It feels like learning how to walk again and signing yourself up for a marathon on the the first day, you know? Mm, Um, And so I've been really starting to think about, how do I breathe new life into something old as a 
just as a way to get out there with training wheels again. And so I think the doomsday prepper is the perfect bit because I get to talk about the fact that the last time I was on stage, I could tell this joke about the doomsday prepper and she was the idiot. Yeah. And now, <laughs> 12 months later, look who's laughing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, she's all stocked up and ready to go. <laughs> exactly. And now, so I think it, it, it's a nice entry into like doing, still being able to do the joke and get all of the laughs that it used to get, mm. but also just adding new stuff about the way the world has changed. Um, so yeah, I think that is going to be my approach to to getting back out in the, the world when stages open up. That's great. Now, we talked a little bit before we started recording about virtual comedy and how you tried it and didn't like it. What? Yeah, I, because I, I talked to quite a few people this in this last year that are either leaning hard into it or can't do it all. And there's a few people like me in the middle. I'll jump in like once in a while, but it just... I, I just feel like, um, I don't know. I f feel like I got stood up for a date afterwards or something. It just, it just doesn't yeah. feel right. But, um, you, you experienced at least a couple of them. What do you think you would do it again if you absolutely had to? No. And I think starting the podcast was my answer to what do I do yeah. without, without, um, comedy. I think for me, the problem with virtual gigs is at least at, at the time I was doing them, and they may have evolved over the last 12 months. I hope they have. But at the time I was doing them, most gigs would either have the audience all with their sound on and then some idiot <laughs> talks to his wife, hey, can you get me a beer while you're up? And yeah. then <laughs> all of a sudden the house of cards you've delicately built to get to your punchline <laughs> ends with, can you get a beer? And you've got to try and start all that again. <laughs> and it's just comedy is hard enough, right? Comedy is hard enough when you are in a room and it's dark for everybody. They can't see each other and you're amplified, right? Yeah. Competing with the TV and the cat and everybody can see each other and scroll. Like, for me, I mean, I, I'm not that good at comic. I just, I don't think I am, right? Um, and then, so there was a period where I did my first one and I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Then I did my second one. And they did the opposite. Everybody was silent the whole time. So, mm. And for me, that is torture. Like, I, I believe in Edinburgh they do a gig where um, the, the whole joke is that the comedian has earmuffs and is blindfolded so cannot tell how the gear is going. Yeah. And I've heard stories of, like, proper headliners doing that gig and coming off stage and crying, right? Oh, yeah. And that's like... If that's like the best, like it's torturous. Yeah. And if that's the best people, then again, I don't want to compete with that. And particularly as we've discussed, like it, what, I like to tell stories. I like to be vulnerable on stage. If you do that and you don't get the um, reward of the laughter, the validation of the laughter as mm. much as it, it shouldn't be. About, but if you don't get that, like you said, it feels a bit like you stood up on prom night. You just feel super like hollow. Like, yeah. and I hated that feeling. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so there's two things you can do now. You can think of 
another way to do comedy that fits a virtual environment. And I tweet around with like, okay, maybe I've got to be really absurd. Maybe I've got to use slides, blah, blah. And then I'm, then I'm learning skills that don't transfer back into stage and, and yeah. or, or maybe they do. I yeah. don't know. But it felt like a lot of effort for also at the time, I thought for a short time, like I didn't realize we'd still be doing this shit yeah. today. I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to learn all these new skills. And then two months later, I'm going to get back on stage and be like, what was that for? Yeah. As it turns out, yeah. um, probably could have evolved a bit, but yeah, I, I just, for me, the emotional exchange was all out of whack. It felt like, yeah, it just, it felt like, as you said, it felt like being stood up on a date you didn't even want to go on. Like your, your friend yeah, asked yeah, yeah, you to take yeah. your, his little sister out to give her a confidence boot. Right. And then you rock up and you're wearing a suit because he's asked you to do that too. Uh, and then she doesn't turn up. It's and like, she doesn't want yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I totally get it. And what we do, the reason why we do it is for the feedback. And there is no, this, this two dimensional conversation we're having here is great. I'm super stoked that I can do it. I'm really glad that I can talk to you over in Europe. I'm here. We're having a great conversation, but it does not take the place of you and I sitting in a bar having a beer together. It, it absolutely yeah. does not. And yeah. comedy is the same way. It's it's yeah. it's totally fine if you're leaning into it and you love it. Um, however, you got to think about, you know, I, I do believe that some of this stuff's going to stay. One of the things I do like is the open mics because you can jump in there, not know anybody, say your five minutes out loud, and you might, it's like on Facebook Live or something, you can rewatch it and find out to you what's funny and what's not. So I, I do enjoy that part. And I'll, I'll jump in on one when I've got some new material, and my expectations are nothing. And if I, 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 if I get a laugh, that's fine. If I don't get a laugh, that's fine. I usually sign off as soon as I'm done uh, and, <laughs> and don't watch anybody else, just like, just like a real open mic. And, <laughs> and uh, that's, I, I, do, I do see some, um, I see some benefit to that. And some of, these, some of these comics are putting on, you know, big paid shows. You know, Berbigley is doing it really well. And um, Steve Hostetter is doing it really well. And I think they're going to continue to do it because, you know what, it's a lot cheaper to do that than uh, fly around and, you know, do six shows in a week or whatever. So, you know, it's, it is what it is. And I think some people are going to adapt to it. And the ones that don't are going to finally, after everybody gets vaccinated, be able to get out and uh, do it for real again. I think one part of it that will, will stay and evolve is I think touring to smaller parts of the town of, of a town, a neighboring town. Yeah. Is, is almost going to become obsolete because what people will do is they'll gig on the time zone and they'll gig in the major cities and rather than going to the neighbouring one while you're in that town and on that time zone, mm -hmm. have a virtual ticket that you can buy to the, you know, rather than doing Berlin and Hamburg, I'm sure people from Hamburg are going to be really annoyed that I've <laughs> rolled them into small town territory. But like, <laughs> rather than doing that, you do your capital and then everywhere else, you can either come virtually or not. But the, the gift that that will have is for the performer, you're still getting the live engagement. And even for the audience, you are getting a, 
you're you're pretty much getting a live Netflix special, which is actually super cool because yeah. it adds to some of that uniqueness and to some of that uh, immediacy that that you lose in a recorded special. Right. Um, and and so yeah, I think that will be really cool. Yeah, and you did exactly what a lot of people did during the pandemic and started the podcast. And I, I really, I really enjoy the format and I, the subject matter, especially those last couple that I listened to is just really great. So how did you come up with the idea? It's highbrow drivel. How did you come up with the idea for that? So I, I guess it's one of those things, right? Where as a comic, every other comic had started a podcast five years ago and everyone had sort of had a crack. And it was something that I did at first make fun of. Like I was, I was a snobby purist. I was the the equivalent of the person who told me I should be on theater. Um, I I just, I didn't want to. And then I realized that I wanted to do something that still kept me engaged, like those parts of my brain. Like how do I be funny working? And I didn't want to be two people and a mic and no topic because those podcasts frustrate the hell out of me. And I didn't want to talk about comedy because I think there's so many good comedy podcasts out there. And I didn't feel like I had anything to add to the conversation, although clearly I guess I do now. Yeah, yeah, you Um, do. (laughs) But... I wanted something like what, what is, what can I do that is interesting and different? Um, and I realized one of the things I've always kind of been in the group, if I had to be a guy was like the curious guy. I was always like, you know, pulling things apart and trying to figure out why they work the way they do. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of being like, Hey, change the channel. I'd be like, yeah, but how does it work? And like pulling apart and I don't like tinkering with my hands, but I do like understanding the kind of mechanics behind the way things interact and things are the way they are. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, I, there, I, I think there is a lot of really cool information about this stuff that is hidden behind academia because academia is boring and written for wankers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I was like, well, there's that information there. And I've got these funny friends who are interesting to listen to. If I bring these two things together, hopefully what we get is, this information in a way that is interesting as it should be for everyone, but accessible and doesn't feel like a TED talk. Uh, yeah. You, it's funny. I, uh, I'm guessing that this has evolved into something more than you expected because you, you, you call it like lighthearted and, um, and, and funny all the time, but you know, you've got some banter at the beginning with, with, with your, one of your guests and you bring the expert out and you, you, you guys have gotten into some pretty good sized debate and it's, it's not necessarily funny, but it's interesting. I mean, the, the billionaire one, the, the last one that came out, you know, that one, I, I told you I learned a lot from that because I hadn't thought of how billionaires are really, you know, they're monopolizing their industry and the cash obviously doesn't go down to the workers and it also stifles uh, creativity because nobody wants to get into it anymore. Yeah, it did. It evolved quite quickly. And part of that was at the time that like, 
proper elected MPs started saying yes to me because, yeah. you know, I was putting out these, hey, do you want to be on my podcast as absolute Hail Marys? And yeah. for the people who said yes, I was like, oh, now I've got to figure out how to have a conversation with, you know, you. I, uh, Russell, uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle, the guy on that most recent episode, mm. he is like the biggest advocate for um, – halting UK arms trades to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. He is an like he's somebody who from a political level I'm so interested in. Mm -hmm. And now I've got to have a conversation with you and try and be funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a lot. <laughs> I, I think every episode really it, it is the dynamic of having two guests and a different subject matter is that every episode is kind of different in in how much weight the interesting takes to the comedy like i've got i've got an episode coming up with about dinosaurs which i thought would get quite dry because dinosaurs can be quite nerdy uh -huh. and it, we barely talk about dinosaurs but there's there's some information within um it really depends on the dynamics at the, in the conversation at the time and i think i like that and i hope the audience do too because what i i think is if, if the expert is giving really good, easy-to-understand answers and me and the other comedian aren't getting bored, mm -hmm. then it would feel facetious to start derailing it with dick jokes. It just needs enough yeah. humour to keep the thing going, right. right? But also, if you can give the information and be hilarious at the same time, that's cool too. And so I think it's to some extent, every conversation left in real life just has its own kind of rhythm mm -hmm. and balance. But so what you, but what, what I definitely try and avoid is that it's a hundred percent. I'd never want an episode to feel like a Ted talk. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> you, you definitely accomplish that. One of the things that I always say, the I think it's very important to recognize that out of all the arts, I think the the comedians are the smartest and also the most willing to take in information like you are, because we have to be so outward focused in order to connect with our audience you we, we listen better i think and we we take in information better and we're not always okay some of us are um but uh some making about ourselves, you know because the conversations you have in the in the in the podcast you're not ever like uh rolling over these these people these yeah. guests you're you're a asking genuine questions and you're not doing all the talking which is it's a sign of a good podcast so that that's what i that's what really intrigued me i wanted i wanted to ask you you've you've done enough episodes now have you had any episodes where either your mind was blown or your mind was changed yeah um and to be honest my favorite episode did both of those for me in the one episode, which is we spoke to an astronomer and I had previously thought that I didn't really care about space. I, I actually did the episode because one of my friends really likes it. And I was like, Oh, you know, kind of cool little thing. I'll, I'll talk to an astronomer. If you yeah. have any questions? And I, 
my, my attitude to space was like, yeah, when I was six, it was cool. But now I've got enough problems here on earth. I don't really give a shit about yeah. that. Yeah. When I figure this stuff out, maybe <laughs> I'll turn my attention outward. Right. Yeah. And the, the guest we had on was the expert astronomer was funnier than some of the comedians, to be honest. She was like, she was brilliant at being entertaining and, and delivering information. And she got into a discussion about whether or not the universe dies in the end and why we don't know and the variables at work. Mm -hmm. And I had my mind blown and, and I've researched so much space stuff since that. Yeah. And it turns out I do care about space. So yeah. I don't, um, and then even even in smaller ways, right? Like I, I I recently recorded. It's not out yet. I think it actually comes out on um, International Women Day, Women's Day, an episode about the orgasm gap, which is the cultural phenomenon that women come less than men. Yeah. And it was a conversation that again it, it just surprised me in that I went into it again. I did my research, and as you said, like as a comic, you kind of like a sponge. Yeah. So I I picked up bits and pieces from my friends and stuff. And so I thought I knew what I was going to say. And it's the classic Mike Tyson quote of everybody has a plan until you're punched in the face. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> 30 seconds before, probably was about three minutes into the episode, the comedian asked me, so has a woman ever complained that you didn't make her come enough and for the rest of the episode i was a bit like oh no i don't know how to have <laughs> this conversation i don't know how to facilitate it yeah. i'm not equipped <laughs> i wish i could tap out like something else yeah happens. yeah i'll release it as a guest that's a tough subject for men yeah uh, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And, and, um, and of course, yeah, not having um, an orgasm is a tough subject for a woman. So you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we get the easier it's part. The comes yeah. to equity. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing about that whole episode, and to be fair, the, the comedian told me off for, for making things awkward. But um, one of the statistics is that in in, in like normal heteronormative pedigree sex. The gap between how often a man orgasms and a woman orgasms is exactly 69%. I <laughs> <laughs> just think that's perfect. Oh, that's great. We're all 14 again. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've really enjoyed what I've listened to. And it's, you know, it's funny. Uh, when you do a podcast, you get kind of so wrapped up in it that you forget to listen to other podcasts. I'm always glad when one pops by and I am such an advocate for independent podcasts that I, I won't even listen to the commercial stuff anymore. I used to love Mark Marin. Nope, I'm done with it uh, because the independent podcasters are the ones that really care about what they're doing and they're they're not necessarily the most polished at least to start out with um, but growing with them i like catching them at that first episode and just growing with them and yours definitely i, I i'm i'm interested in a lot of things like you but i'm glad that you wrap it up in about an hour because that's that's about my attention span on new stuff if i want to take from that 
Because the billionaire thing, I, I, I went down a Google rabbit hole after that. But the if it's something that I'm interested in for an hour and then I'm done with it, that's fine. But And it's a different subject every week. So that also is appealing because, uh, you know, I get sometimes my wife really likes the true crime podcast. And the thing that bugs me about them is every episode, half of it is a rehash of the last episode and there's nothing new brought up. So it's, I I like them a little bit, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I'm a fan. I like what you do. Yeah, so I, I I was pretty conscious to avoid the you know Game of Thrones syndrome, which is somebody goes, hey, you gotta you gotta listen to this podcast. It's really cool, and the, then the person wants to, but then actually they've got to get through ten hours of intro crap before it even gets good. No, yeah. like I wanted every episode to be itself self-contained, yeah. like cool. And then also, I'm quite conscious of the fact that again, part of this podcast is. I don't have the skills to have the conversations with these people above the level that they're yeah. at. Like, <laughs> if this goes too much longer, they're going to realize, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So <laughs> you tap out when they still think you knew yeah, what you were yeah. doing. Yeah, we, we got to surface scratch. Let's get out of here. Stop recording. <laughs> So that's one side of it. But then hopefully the other side is exactly what you said, is that we have enough of a conversation. There's enough ideas presented. Um, Sometimes we're all in agreement and that's cool. Other times we're not. And either way, hopefully it's enough that somebody goes, if if they are interested in that subject, they go, okay, here are some things I want to look up and and, and build my own opinion around. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And if they're not, hopefully it's entertaining enough that they go, okay, that was that. And now I never have to listen to whatever that subject was again, because I, I I've spent an hour confirming that that is not for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to, you've got one a little bit farther down in the back catalog about dreams. And I can't wait to listen to that because I've been having some really weird dreams and the older I get, the more vivid they are. And I wake up and remember them and stuff. And so I I can't, I can't wait to listen to that one. That's going to be next on my list. I think. So a funny thing happened in that episode is that I, I guess as a new podcaster started, like as somebody who was a new podcaster, sorry, you you would have had this phenomenon as well in that, you know, you see the stats on the, the sheet and you know, there's however many hundred people listening, but for a long time, at least for me, they never interacted with me. And to be fair, there is only one moment in the whole podcast that a bunch of people interacted with me and said, Oh my God, I loved that. Uh-huh. And it was in the dreams episode where I asked the dream expert, like, you know, integrating stuff into your dreams so that you don't wake up. That's kind of a cool phenomenon, but why doesn't our body realize that it shouldn't do that when you need to piss? Like, why did I once piss the bed because I'd integrated it into my dream? Uh And I thought at the very least, the comedian would have some jokes about it or the expert would have something forgiving to say. Uh And quite literally, they both left me hanging. And the (laughs) the dreams expert was like, well, I can't say that happens all that often. Literally, my (laughs) inbox lit up with people going, I can't believe you told them you pissed the bed and they just said that doesn't happen that often. (laughs) Oh, that's... I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. When when you when you can get shit on your own podcast, that's always the best. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's funny. Yeah. One of the memes. One of the memes I made. I think I made it this week. Was uh, I? I got two podcasters talking to each other, and they and I said. Uh, Okay, are you ready to talk uh, three and a half hours about 22-minute uh, Seinfeld episode? Because that's, I mean, that's what a lot of them are, and I can't, I, I can't even do that. But um, so, yeah, the podcast is great. I, I know you're on all the, the apps like I am, and I noticed you're using PodPage like I am, which is uh, yeah. the, absolutely the best way to do a podcast page because I was messing around with WordPress and Wix and all that stuff this all you got to do is plug it in and you're done and i, I like that yeah. um one of the things i, I want to get back to comedy a little bit uh yeah. i like to ask a lot of people that i talk to uh what was the best and worst advice you got coming up as a comedian the best advice is kind of cliche and it's a bit of non-advice but i genuinely genuinely think this is true of a new comedian that you should do this mm. Listen to everything and ignore just as much. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you should you should be interested in the advice that older comics give you. Mm-hmm. You should even, to be honest, like don't expect to be great to begin with. And if anything, like like I said, for me personally, not experimenting more in those first couple of years led me to quit, and I I nearly never gigged again. So I think when you're early and you you don't have an audience and you your your whole like the way you learn to perform on stage is so malleable you you haven't you're finding your voice so that you don't have a kind of muscle memory of how you process a thing into comedy right experiment as much as you can like f- try everything that somebody says try it see if it works maybe it works for you mm-hmm. and if it doesn't don't feel like you can't do comedy because you didn't do it the way they said you should. Mm. I think that's the best bit of advice. I think the worst bit of advice was <laughs> you need to be so good that you sell out theaters because otherwise <laughs> nobody's going to want to see you. <laughs> um, which is, I mean, to be honest, again, as a friend, and I think I, I understand the merit in what they're saying, which is that comedians who do more storytelling style mm-hmm. have less middle ground like yeah. you, you're not making a lot of money unless you're really great yeah i'm kind of lucky in that i i never gave away my day job and i've i've, I've kind of slaved pretty hard over both um and so i never need to worry about this being good enough that i make a living off it is still mm-hmm. largely you know, any money that I get from it is cool and I'm never going to say no to it, but it is still largely for me a passion project and something that I I want to do the way I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but secondly, I mean, there, like, I, I'm not, for, for all of the criticism around the style of comedy that I do, festivals are hard to, to make money at. I've never lost money at a festival. That includes accommodation, mm. venue hire, all of that. Right. I, I've always broke even. Um, at Edinburgh, when I was doing a, a Pay What You Like show, I mean, I I got lucky with the rate of accommodation I paid and that stuff, but I still, I didn't lose money. I've, I've never sunk my own money into, into a, a show and not 
at least made what I've spent back. So I think you can fail just as hard trying to do the most conventional form of comedy as you can doing what it is you enjoy. So I, I do think anybody who says, you know, this is comedy and this is not is an asshole to be honest, because the audience will tell you if it's comedy or not by whether or not they laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And uh, one of the things that it's funny, I I don't know how it is over there, but here it's so competitive. Even if you're in a tiny market like I am, the getting feedback from another comic is it just doesn't happen because they, they don't want to tell you if you did well, because then you'll keep doing well. And they don't want to tell you if you did poorly, because they want you to be up there shitting the bed so that they look better. So it's, it's funny. I, I've never gotten at least, uh, that's one good thing about uh, the virtual comedy is that you actually do get some good feedback. They'll write you a little note and say, Hey, that was really good. Or if they know you well enough, they'll say, Hey, you, you could be better at that one. Your punchline was pretty weak, but you know, it's, it's funny that here I've never gotten much feedback from my local peeps. And uh, I don't know. That's interesting. Cause I, I think, in, in Australia in particular, um, the, the structures are both rigid but massive in such a way that it yeah. is almost redundant. You've got, like, new comics who can only get a gig at a couple of rooms and then once a month somebody will give them a tryout at a better mm-hmm. room. Then you've got this massive conglomerate of people in varying degrees in the middle mm-hmm. and then you've got the people at the top. Mm-hmm. Um and I found that the people you make friends with at the bottom, uh, kind of you help each other in the middle. And so even since I'm, I've been here for five years, I still have a couple of mates who I'm good friends with back home who will send me a recording of a gig and mm-hmm. say, what do you think about this punchline? I'm thinking of changing that over there. And equally, you know, when, when I was going through and uh, doing the, the show that is out now on, on Spotify, I, I genuinely sent a couple of them the script and I was like, okay, here's word for word, uh, the punchline, you know, here's a recording if I've got it. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do do a bit of that. And so it was, was good in Australia. In the UK, it's a bit harder because it's a bigger scene. So you gig with the same person less often. Yeah. But still, there's a couple of people who, if I, if I got off stage and they were at the gig, you know that you can go, hey, what do you think of that tag? Yeah. Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah. Um, and I think as much as possible um, where that happens, it is so invaluable because otherwise it's a lonely goddamn gig, right? You, yeah. you get off stage <laughs> and you do well and everybody fucking hates you yeah. because they <laughs> you've, you've, you've set the bar too high and you stink it up and they treat you like you're contagious because yeah. they don't want to the audience to think you're friends with them yeah, and yeah. think less of them. It's a, yeah. it's a lonely gig. Yeah. You just, you just uh, described uh, United States comedy. So that, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the podcast is highbrow drivel and I know you've got a site for that. Um, where can people find you and what's your favorite social media to communicate with folks? I, I think either Twitter or Instagram. Um, 
Instagram, I have Highbrow Drivel, uh, the podcast page. Twitter, it's at Anthony Genot. Um, So both of those are, are good for, for getting responses from me. Um, and genuinely, on, on both of them, particularly at the moment, I've got nothing better to do, right? Like, yeah. if, even if you've not listened to an episode, even if you want to be like, why haven't you spoken about the fucking water shortage in Dubai or I don't know yeah. whatever weird thing you want to hear about. Yeah. Um, let me know and I'll, I'll probably ignore it, but maybe it's great. <laughs> yeah. You, you may want to do it, but finding the expert sometimes that's, that's the difficult part. So yeah, I I've, uh, I've subscribed to some podcast uh, guest things that uh, people hit me up on and uh the the quality is varying. Uh, I, I, I've had a few often terrible. Yeah, I um. So it's one of those things, right? Because podcasting's been around for so long, and often there are similarities in comedy in that often the sort of people who start a podcast are people who have a lot to say whose friends don't want to listen to them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so they start publishing to avoid and hoping that they find their people, right? And so when I started podcasting to begin with, I was like, oh, I'll join these, you know, guest matchmaking kind of platforms. Yeah. And within a week, my inbox was flooded with entrepreneurs and self-help authors oh, yeah. and wellness people right and so i took to every one of those platforms said at the top it said no no like a no hawkers sign it was like yeah. no wellness no uh entrepreneurs no self-help yeah and still my inbox blew up and so then i was just like i just deleted it all because i the temptation to be like okay you haven't even read the first line why why would i put you on like yeah i i just I've been accused of liking the sound of my own voice and it's something that I, I'm like, you know what, probably I'm, I, you know, there's enough evidence to suggest you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not annoying. Like I'm not, not doing the, like the digital thing of knocking on people's door, being like door to door. Hey, do you want to just listen to me talk for a bit? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Ridiculous. yeah. Yeah. No doubt. It's funny. I had a publicist that I was working with for a little bit, and he gave me a couple good comics to talk to, but he kept trying to give me psychics. And I'm like, dude, have you have you listened to my podcast? Because it's a serious talk about stand-up comedy. How does a psychic fit into this? Tell me. And I ended up, he, what he would do, he would get me on the phone. And then he'd get his clients on the phone, and it would be a two-hour conversation between me, three-way call with the client, hang up, next client. And finally, he had me on, and it was for it was about an hour and a half, and I finally just looked at the phone and hung up. And then he called me seven times after that, that night, and he blew up my Facebook messages, so I had to block him on all platforms. And it's, I, I, I'm happy he got me a couple of good ones but it's not worth it yeah yeah it's it's not worth Scott, it Scott, do you know the funniest thing about that the whole time you're telling that story in my head i'm just like also the psychics can't have been any good because if they were they would have known you had no fucking intro yeah. <laughs> I, I may use that i like that <laughs> 
Well, I got to say, it's been really good talking to you, and uh, the, the podcast is great. Highbrow High Drivel is one that's it's on my list now, and I I can't wait to listen to the dream one and see you uh, get hung out to drive because <laughs> you're pissed to bed. But uh, you know, it was it, it's really neat to to understand the different sensibilities. And it's really cool that you're from Australia and you're in the UK now, because there's differences, as you know, there's differences even there. And, uh, and then coming over here, it's uh, a total, total difference. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stoked that I got to hear your album and we, we got to talk. Yeah. It's been great fun, man. Thanks for getting me on. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show, Anthony. Cheers.